Hey, everybody. Welcome to this month's edition of the U.S. Center for Coaching Excellence podcast. And I'm Sam Callen, your host, and I'm really excited to be joined by three really, really sharp folks. And uh, I'll, I'll give a little background on how sort of this came about. Uh, Guy Krieger at U.S. Archery has been uh, working with uh, a couple of folks here, uh, Katie uh, Yezzie particularly, and trying to work with how to train coaches better. And a guy had also gone to a Teach Like a Champion conference a couple of years ago, or workshop a couple of years ago, and had spoken highly of it to me. And then um, I think some of you folks were at their conference down in Houston recently, which we'll could talk about at the end. But uh, Guy had some really great things, as did Kristen Diefenbach, who had uh, interacted with you guys down in Houston and saw some of the stuff you were doing and thought it would be a really good thing. And since, since Kristen is the president of the USCCE, um, if she says she thinks it's a good idea, I, uh, I jump on it and do what she tells me. So with that, I want to introduce uh, uh, Doug Lamov, Katie Yezzie, and Erica Woolway. And together, they're all for authors of recent book, uh, Practice Perfect, and we'll get to talking about that too. But I want to start with Erica, a little background uh, for folks, and then we'll uh, swing it to Katie for the same question. Great. So, hi, I'm Erica Woolway. I'm the Chief Academic Officer of the Teach Like a Champion team at Uncommon Schools and a co-author of Practice Perfect and Reading Reconsidered. Uh, prior to joining the Teach Like a Champion team, I was a dean of students as well as a kindergarten teacher. So, thanks for having me on the podcast. Great. Katie, a little bit about you. Hi, everybody. I'm Katie Yezzie, and I'm the Assistant Superintendent for Uncommon Schools Troy. So, I manage three high-performing charter schools um, in Troy, New York. And prior to this, I taught for eight years um, and then entered school leadership um, through a program called New Leaders. And I met Doug doing that program. Um, And flash forward many years to 2008 when Doug offered me the opportunity to open a school with him um, in Uncommon Schools. Um, so I, I was the founding principal of our elementary school, um, the founding principal of our high school, and um, and now manage all three schools. But in the process, really in, in moving into administration was when I kind of started my journey of coaching teachers um, and then um, have in the past few years moved into coaching principals to coach teachers. Super. And uh, Doug, your your background, and then we'll kind of get into how you got into this path through that. Sure. Well, I entered the co- the uh, coaching world through the traditional uh, the traditional way in the front door, which is I was an English teacher uh, for many years, <laughs> uh, and then then started a school uh, with some folks, and and kind of stumbled into becoming the principal of that school, and then uh, helped start an organization called Uncommon Schools that set out to run to increase the number of high-quality, high-performing uh, schools for for kids in underserved neighborhoods and cities around the Northeast. Uh, so, um, you know, at the time, there were just one or two of these schools. They were a real rarity, and we, we were just trying to think about how to run better schools that got all kids the opportunity to go to college and, and accomplish their dreams. That turned out to be super challenging, but with uh, people like Erica and, and Erica and Katie, we were able to uh, start a fair number of them, and in the course of doing that, um, I ended up writing a book about teaching, um, which uh, which you referenced. It's called Teach Like a Champion, and that sort of led the three of us on a journey of discovering what professional development could look like for teachers. Well, let's talk about the uncommon schools and, and a little bit about that, and kind of how are those different than your common schools, if you will. <laughs> And anybody can jump in and answer that. Well, Katie, you lead one, so you should you should go first on this. <laughs> sure, I'll start. Um, so we our schools are charter schools, um, so they're public schools, but um, we are authorized by the charter legislation to um, to operate the schools outside of school districts. So we are like a large district. Um, and we run currently, I, I want to say, 53 schools in Boston, Newark, Brooklyn, Troy, Rochester, and Camden. Um, and our schools have one mission, which is to prepare our students. Um, many, you know, I would say about 
85 to 90% of whom um, live below the poverty line. Uh, we, our mission is to prepare them to be successful in college. And by doing so, it's really about our mission to kind of change what we say is change history um, and right some of the, wrong, the, the wrongs, historical wrongs in our society. So these are, you know, the typical neighborhood where an uncommon school is located would, you know, maybe 3% uh, of kids would go on to college. Only, you know, a small percentage might even graduate from high school. And so we set out to, you know, run, what would it take to run a school where everyone graduated and was prepared to go to college and they all went on to college and uh, the great majority were successful there. And so that was kind of the question that we started, uh, that we started answering when we tried to start these schools. That, by the way, ended up being really, really challenging, and teachers would come back to us with lots of questions like, what do you do when? Um, and there just weren't a lot of answers for those questions. Yeah, that, you know, that's very much happens in the coaching world as well. Of You get a bunch of coaches together, and they start talking about what do you happen when an athlete does this or doesn't do that or whatever. So I, I think there's a ton of parallels between the coaching world and the teaching world, and we often hear coaches refer to themselves as, you know, I always consider myself to be a teacher first. And um, we could do a whole podcast on sort of the problematic issues that I have with that statement um, and the fact that they're not always held to the standard or have the training that we have teachers have. And unfortunately, that's one of the things that uh, is a downside to this. And hopefully folks like you and myself and other folks listening to this can change that in terms of um, uh, giving them the tools they need to succeed. Uh, on the playing field with that. Um, so what are some of the – so, Doug, you wrote Teach Like a Champion. I read it when it came out, which has been a while now. In fact, I, it's really bad. You know, you get to a certain age where you think it, you just did something like a year or two ago, and you realize it was like <laughs> eight or nine years ago. Um, yeah. you know, my, my friend Al says, uh, you know, as you get older, the days get – uh, was it the days get longer, but the years get shorter? And um, I thought that was very insightful. Um, but maybe discuss a little bit about Teach Like a Champion, what you learned from that, and, and or what you learned that led to that book. Yeah, well, maybe the book was the effort to answer that question from teachers, which is, what do you do when? Uh, and that that set of questions ran the ran the gamut from, what do you do when? Uh, your kids try really, really hard and they just don't seem to be making any progress? Or what do you do when you have a kid who sits in the corner of your room and just wants to be left alone and, uh, and wants to give up on school? Or what do you do when you walk into a classroom full of 30 highly energetic kids and you say, uh, okay, let's sit down and get started and absolutely no one pays any attention to you and you're thinking you're the adult in the room. You know, these are like, these are, uh, these are like fairly predictable challenges of what it means to walk into a classroom to invest and try and, you know, if you want to try and do great things, you have to have great answers to those questions. And they were, they were really hard to come by for folks. And we went back through all the books we'd read in, you know, in our own education and they, they weren't always that helpful. And so we, the first thing that we did was we went out to try and find positive outliers. There are people who successfully answer those questions. What could we learn if we studied them? And so I found myself, um, uh, you know, running data sets where I'd find schools in high poverty neighborhoods with high performing teachers and I'd go watch them and uh, it would be pretty inspiring. You know, you'd see them do things that were, you were reminded of the best teacher that you'd ever had. and uh, They were tremendous. So I started videotaping them and, and trying to take notes on what they did. And, and the things that they did kind of fell into a series of categories. You know, I think one of the ones that's most applicable to coaches that I often find myself talking to coaches about is the idea of checking for understanding, which is whether you are a coach or a teacher, your fundamental challenge is how do I, is understanding that the gap as John Wooden memorably put it between I taught it and they learned it. Um, and I, that's, that's a great description of the fundamental challenge of teaching. Like how do I, I know I stood up here and talked about, I talked about pressing or I talked about uh, the causes of the civil war for an hour, but whether they know it, and are prepared to demonstrate it on Saturday is a very different question. Uh, and it turns out that really great teachers solving that, solving that question have a lot of things I hope to offer uh, coaches, and coaches solving that problem have a lot of things to offer the teachers also. So uh, so you know, that was one of the big categories. I think one of the, you know, uh, 
how do you engage students fully mental, mentally? How do you build the right culture that uh, causes them to be locked in and focused and get the most out of their learning experience? Those are some of the sort of categories that I think ended up taking on in Teach Like a Champion. Well, and I appreciate the fact that that check for understanding is really good. Looking back on my experience as a youth sport coach, which is many, many, many years ago, I realized I utterly failed at that. I, I thought when I would have a group of 10-year-olds, baseball players, some of whom were playing base, organized baseball for the first time, and I would you know, think I was teaching them something, and then, okay, now go out and I'm going to hit you a ground ball, and then it was like, it looked nothing like what I said it should look like or what it looked like. And, and I remember getting frustrated at that, like, how, how come these kids are not picking this up? You know, and then when that light went on, I went, "Oh crap! I should have gotten frustrated myself for not being a very good teacher of it, and not them." And I felt really, really horrible. Thirty-five years after the fact, um, in fact, my nephew was one of those players, and I, uh, I called him up and I apologized to him many, many years later, but um, for doing that, and he had no clue what I was talking about. <laughs> with that. So that was, luckily, you know, he didn't remember that. He right. remembers, you know, playing baseball, and that his uncle and his dad were coaching him. So it was a lot of fun. But I vividly remember that, and uh, and so thank, thank goodness his memory is not as good as mine on that one. Yeah. Well, so so you you did the teach like a champion workshops, uh, and you've been doing those for quite a while, trying to get more teachers to understand these, you know, basic categories, buckets of things, and, and apply them. Uh, so what led to uh, Practice Perfect and and you're kind of shifting how you go about doing that? I can jump in briefly. This is Erica. Go for it. Um, I, I, I remember very clearly when um, Doug approached me about uh, working on Practice Perfect because he said he wanted to write his next book, um, a derivative of our work, and so I was thinking, uh-oh, are we going to go? Are we going to go into parenting books here? Because <laughs> uh, we all have two or, two or three children. So I was a little little worried. Uh, but he was talking about just all, reflecting on all that we had learned on, on practice over the years of training teachers. Uh, and what we say when in our trainings and what we've learned over the years is our initial trainings really, we experience what we call the get it, do it gap. Uh, teachers would come to our trainings. Um, they would be really inspired. They would get, quote unquote, get the techniques and that they understood them and they could name them and they could identify them and analyze them in practice. Uh, but when they went back to their schools and when we went to observe, we weren't seeing the techniques in action. Uh, and it wasn't until we introduced this idea of practice uh, into our workshops that we really started to see the techniques um, really come out of, come from teachers who had, who had been in our workshops. And so we also say now in our workshops that we really believe we, you know, as teachers, we're in a performance profession. What we do, we do live with, with our students on a daily basis. And if it's not going well, um, we can't, you know, pull the ripcord or press the pause button. But so in order to prepare for that, the instead of, you know, sitting in a room and reflecting uh, and discussing, which often feels good but doesn't change behavior, we started to use practice as a tool to, uh, to incorporate techniques into teachers' practice. And, you know, we all, we all have said about Teach Like a Champion that it's, what's useful about it is that it's, it's not new techniques necessarily. It's just codifying what great teachers do. It's giving them language to talk about them, and that language then allows us to practice them as well. Very good. Um, anybody else have any addition to that or remembrances? Well, I mean, I think one of the fundamental experiences was uh, at first the elation of people leaving workshops and saying, wow, thank you so much. I now understand what I need to do to make my classroom look the way I want it to. And that we had very quickly this idea of between get it and do it emerged, which is people understood what they wanted to have happen but it was very hard to actually make it happen. And so, um, you know, there's a, a notion that is really uh, intuitive to coaches, which is the way to make something happen in a complex performance environment is to rehearse it beforehand, was, you know, at this point that we were writing this book, it was really anathema in, in, the, in the teaching sector. No, if, you, if you asked a group of teachers, how often do you practice the things you try to do in the game, um, no one would have looked, raised their hand because they would have looked at you funny. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> and in fact, you know, the first couple of workshops that we did, people would look at us, look at us with like abject dread when we said, okay, now we're going to get up and we're going to practice. And we're going to practice giving better directions to our kids. So like, let's get up and practice that. We're going to practice um, uh, as non-invasively as possible, uh, resetting expectations with a student who's not being productive. We're going to practice, um, you know, whatever, whatever it was that we were talking about. But we would get these comments at our workshops afterwards, like, um, at first I dreaded the practice, but in the end it was the best thing that we did, or, uh, you know, you guys should talk less and we should practice more, <laughs> or something like that. And, and over time, you know, I think what happened was people went from, I really love this, I really love this workshop, but I w wasn't really able to change my classroom, which is what they would say, uh, you know, three and four months later when we didn't use practice, two months later them saying, wow, you know, really feeling the difference and coming to believe in the prospect of professional development because they saw a difference in their teaching environment. You know, I think one of the challenges of the education sector is that many teachers enter professional development with their arms folded thinking, you know, how, how, how soon is this going to be over? How, how soon can I get out of this? And I think that's the same in the coaching sector often. And that, um, you know, uh, a, a colleague of ours says that buy-in is an outcome, not a prerequisite, that if the, if the professional development, teachers, teachers react that way because they're used to being in professional development that doesn't make them better. But if the professional development makes them better and they can feel the difference, they'll be bought into it and they'll want it because mm -hmm. most people want to be good at their jobs. Mm -hmm. So it's really been a, um, it's really been a culture shift. The, th the very thing that people dreaded, the practice, was actually the thing that people came to love. And I think that we just started to reflect on, so what is the nature of practice? How does it work? How does it make people better uh, in this kind of laboratory of the three of us together running workshops? And that was, that was where the genesis for the book came about. Yeah, and this is, this is Katie. I just want to jump add to that. I remember um, that in our search to make our, our professional development better, we all read um, the talent code. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, just were all like it was just all these light bulbs and you know you're we so excited about it but we it just left us with this question of okay so but what what is practice right we you know we're like we, we read about deep practice and we know how important that is and that's what is the common theme of getting people better um and so we we really started writing in a way that was like it was it was a learning pro like it was it was kind of capturing our learning as we were we were in the midst of of figuring out what practice was um, and a couple kind of funny things <laughs> for me looking back is you know I was at the same time I was opening the elementary school and so I was developing teachers and I just I remember very distinctly working with a teacher who was really great you know in it to win it, you know, tried everything, like applied every bit of feedback that she was given. And, you know, I remember having a check-in with her and just saying, being like, oh, yeah, hey, listen, um, I saw this in your class. You know, I think you want to try this. And she's like, yeah, totally. That makes sense. I got it. Uh, I'll do that. Um, and so then I popped into her classroom and I was like, I saw no evidence <laughs> that she actually was doing what I talked about. Um, and so we debriefed it. And I was like, hey, what, what did you think about that? She, she um, had completely had a different concept of what I was talking about. And ah. um, because we hadn't, because I hadn't taken the extra moment to say, great, let's try it out right now before you go into class. Um, which would give me that opportunity that Doug was talking about to check for understanding that um, she knows exactly what I what I'm kind of imagining, or even a moment for me to say, let me show you what I think that would look like, um, and to model for her. Uh, we just she she like completely missed it, and so uh, I just I remember you know literally relearning and learning these ideas about practice as we were writing the book, um, kind of seeing them play out <laughs> or not play out and just being like, right, of course, this is, this is what I need to be doing. I think that's such an interesting example because it's a really, it's an example of checking for understanding, which is if you tell someone something, you assume that they understand, they struggle to do it. Um, you know, there's this great line in uh, one of our favorite books is Chip and Dan Beek's book, Switch, 
which is how to make change when change is difficult. And they have this great observation that um, what we often assume in people is resistance to change uh, is actually lack of clarity about what to do next or how to do it. And so I think the gap that, that Katie's insight describes is let's do it here together a little. Let's make sure we, you know, we get a base understanding of it, and then you can go try it in a more complex environment as opposed to walking into a super complex environment and even sometimes just trying to remember to do the thing that you wanted to do at the beginning yeah. of the class is really, is really hard when you're managing uh, 37th graders, you know, just after lunch and trying to get them to, um, you know, to focus on the, on, you know, on the giver or whatever novel you're reading or on uh, or whatever math you're doing. Um, it's challenging. Simple things in a complex environment is, are challenging to execute. Well, you know, you, you mentioned people would be at your, you know, workshops in the in the past and leave there feeling all energized and stuff. And I, I bet every person listening to this has had that same experience. You go, and, and we are trained from a very young age to sit and sort of be passive also. And so, you know, all throughout school, unfortunately, at least my experience was, I think a lot of people is, the teachers at the front disseminating knowledge or disseminating information, and I'm expected to just sort of, absorb it and not and then when you go to professional development things or conferences you're doing a lot of the same thing and I mean I can probably count the number uh, on one hand the number of times that somebody said okay here's a concept now everybody get up and practice it and um, and so the, and the other part is that you know you leave that conference all excited about the things you learned and then you get back into your day-to-day -day routine and like Katie said you you just forget about you forget about it. You, you just there's nothing there that reminds you to do it unless you're incredibly intentional and diligent, and you get back in your old routine and habits. And I think sometimes changing that can be a big challenge, especially if you've never got to sort of think about what it meant or to be able to do it yourself and to in a safe environment where if I screw up, I haven't screwed up in front of my you know 37th graders. I maybe you know messed up in front of some colleagues and. I can get that feedback from them and, and do it better. And so it's a little safer environment for that and uh, maybe a little less stressful. You felt, felt like, well, shoot, I just wasted a period, you know, trying something new and it, it utterly failed. And and I'm just going to try to do anything different um, mentality as well. Sammy, just touched on something that we are, are – have become a lot more intentional about in our workshops, which is um, creating a culture of practice. So whenever uh, we host our workshops, they're typically two days. Uh, people come from all over the country. Uh, and so we realize that in a very short period of time, we have to create a culture where people feel safe practicing because um, otherwise they won't, they won't leave uh, having, having gotten anything from the training. Um, and, you know, we've, we've been reflecting on a lot of uh, experiences from the past, but I remember uh, an early principal training that I was in in which um, we were practicing family communication and the scenario was, okay, there's an upset parent outside your building and they have a brick in their hand. Who wants to practice? <laughs> and, you know, maybe two people raised their hand to, to practice and everybody else thought, there's no way I'm practicing that because I wouldn't practice successfully and I'm not about to practice a very difficult scenario in front of a hundred of my peers. Uh, and so we've really done quite the opposite, which is create very low-stakes practice activities, um, especially at the beginning of our workshops where teachers um, are hesitant to potentially practice, um, and oftentimes that practice is, is, is either private, right? The entire room maybe is practicing their nonverbal signals for how to, you know, ask the student to sit, sit, um, sit up straight or raise their hand. Um, and then we build upon that. Then you practice with a partner, and your initial practice doesn't involve feedback. But then towards the end of the training, we've definitely um, integrated more skills and made it a lot <clears throat> more challenging. But teachers are invested because they've had a lot of opportunities at low-stakes practice. Something else you said uh, reminds me of, of sort of the evolution of Teach Like a Champion and, and now Practice Perfect as well, which is so Teach Like a Champion has already uh, – uh, evolved into Teach Like a Champion 2.0, all the things that we've learned after observing teachers use the techniques and, and improve upon them. So uh, Doug captured that in, in 2.0. And I find the same thing with, with practice. Uh, you know, I think we've done a good job of creating, as I said, safe cultures for practice. Um, but we've all been in trainings 
CPR training usually comes to mind for me where, um, okay, I know I'm going to a CPR training and I know I will be actually practicing the skills. So the, the culture of practice isn't as much of a challenge. And I can pretty reliably say that I could uh, use CPR to, uh, on someone who needed it within the first week of the training. But beyond that, I will have pretty much completely forgotten everything I learned in that training. Yeah. Uh, and so a lot of the research that we're doing now, Doug especially, is on cognitive load theory and making sure that not only when you learn the skills and practice them, that you remember them. Um, and so that's something that we're, we're really exploring now. Um, yeah, it's, I, I work for the YMCA here in uh, Colorado Springs for about a year, and uh, every, every every employee at a YMCA has to have CPR, first aid, and AED training. And I think there's oxygen training too, or maybe that's just some staff I can't remember. But anyway, and for a long time it was um, it was those were good for three years. You know, once you got trained. So I got if I'd gotten trained in. 2012, I wouldn't have had to get trained again until 2015 under their old system. But what they found was that, you know, you rarely use any of those skills. First aid a little bit more because we have pools and outside activities. You get kids who are scraped up and stuff. So, yeah, you do that part. But the CPR, I don't know that anyone in our in our region had used CPR on a person in at least the previous five years so it's not something you normally do and so they actually changed it to where now that recertification was done every year in in the attempt to okay remind you and keep it fresh because like you said after you know some period of time you're gonna forget you know something in there to you know how to open the airway or something that's pretty subtle but important and uh, at first I was kind of like no way I, I mean I've been CPR trained off and on for 40 years, and um, and it's like, oh, not every year. And then I thought about it and said, no, nah, we really need this because we have 15-year-old lifeguards who that's their first training, and they need refreshers on it as well. So I think those those refresher courses can be really important and maybe even just practicing if you haven't aren't going to use it for a while as well is uh, is a, something to try out for, for teachers and coaches because you may only teach that skill one time a year, and then the next year you've got to teach that skill to you know new basketball players or new baseball players, and you can forget in that time or get rusty on it. Sorry, I tried a little tangent there on just uh, on, on uh, staying no, I was, fresh with your training. Yeah. Well, I, I, was just, I was just talking to a group of a group of lacrosse coaches about that this week, which is you know what's the most single over most overlooked uh, thing about learning? It's the power of forgetting. Right, like you have forgotten almost everything that you've learned in your life, more than ninety some percent. You know, and if you doubt me, if anyone out there doubts me, have kids wait fifteen years and try and help them with their history homework or their science homework. And so, this is that, like one of the most useful phrases that we've read in our recent research is um, by uh, a British author that we love to read, Harry Fletcher Wood. He says, uh, "Performance during training is a poor indicator of long-term learning." Which, and this is when we measure and practice, right? At the end of the training session, we're, um, you know, we're working on our pressing defense, and we're like, hey, everyone looks great. They've got pressing defense. And as soon as you stop, the battle against forgetting begins. And half an hour later, the data tells us people will have forgotten half of what they knew. And the next day, they'll know a fraction of what they knew. And so then we get to the situation where you arrive in the game on Saturday, and the press is a mess. And at halftime, the coach is shouting at the kids, we talked about pressing all week. Well, yeah. yeah, we did, but we didn't think about the role of forgetting. We talked about it on Monday, and by Wednesday, it was almost gone. And so if you want to be serious about learning, you've got to start thinking about um, one cognitive scientist says it defines learning as a change in long-term memory, that you've got to do retrieval practice and come back to it and be strategic about how you come back to it and uh, how you come back to an activity and you vary it with other activities to create more forgetting, which makes remembering it harder, which helps you remember it better. And so uh, I just think that, you know, happily, I think we've learned a ton about what it means to help people master uh, master activities and skills. Once, once you know what you want to do, the battle is, has just begun. But, um, you know, we're still kind of still on this journey of understanding what it means to help achieve expertise or help, help, help uh, master expertise at something. The the uh, the the comment about 
you know, forgetting everything and then getting kids. Uh, this was driven home last year. My daughter was taking geometry, and I told her how much I loved geometry when I was in it. I, I love doing proofs and things. And a couple of days later, I get a text from her. You know, how do you prove something? I said, I said, I have no idea. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I love doing it, but honey, I was your age when I was doing that, and I, you know. That was the last time I wrote a proof was when I, you know, left Miss um, Ruder's, you know, sophomore geometry class. But, but I remember loving doing it. But you know, I, I know I can't tell you how to do that, um, and, and nor should I tell you how to do it either. It's your work, but uh, I can't help you with that one. Uh, yeah, that's that's a humbling moment for sure uh, with that. So I want to get back and, and to describe a little bit because kind of talked uh, talked about it a little bit. Sorry, I'm stammering there. Um, about the setting up the environment and the practice. So what does that practice look like? And then what feedback are they getting, you know, immediately after from their peers or from, you know, the facilitators in one of your workshops? Katie, you want to jump in here? Sure. Um, I like the way you threw Katie under the bus on that one. That was great. Yeah. 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 Well, the, the, <laughs> That's the, it's, the, the, the common knowledge is that when the three of us are working together, the person who goes first kind of gets the answer started, and then the other two are coming up with the really smart things to say. So, ah, um, I like I'll, that. I'll, I'll, I'll be the sacrificial lamb on this one. Um, no, I'm just kidding. So we, we um, in our workshops, I would say we we really are trying to kind of introduce ex and model a whole variety of different ways to approach practice um, and as well as giving our participants the opportunity to have an immersion in those those activities so um, we have we do practice labs in our workshop so where they get to experience practice as a participant um, and knowing that that they've come to this workshop um, you know so that they they can learn how to run practice better themselves so you know that that we want them to to experience practice as a participant go all in on that but also you know not not lose sight of the fact that they're wearing another hat which is as a trainer a developer um, a coach, um, and that they should also be paying attention to the the moves that we're making as facilitators to run the practice. Um, and then after the practice lab, we do a fair amount of um, what we call getting meta. So you know, thinking about and analyzing the experience that they've just had, and then kind of explaining and drawing out um, some of the techniques that we've just we've just exposed them to in this in this. Um, this practice lab um, and so uh, part of that is um, with feedback we we have you know we do we do a range of um, different methods of, of feedback so um, we'll have participants give each other uh, direct feedback and we'll give them sentence stems so um, we'll say we want you to give two pieces of feedback the first piece is it was effective when and then you fill in the dot you fill in the blank and the second piece is next time try and we actually have spent a lot of time developing those sentence stems <laughs> um, where we wanted people to note something that was effective and it, we but we felt like noting something that's effective is better than saying I liked it when um, because we wanted people to understand that it's the feedback is more powerful when it when you're describing to someone um, what what they're what they're doing that is having the impact that they want rather than something that you that if you say I liked when it's kind of your personal preference um, that they may or may not really um, be invested in and then next time try I think that gets at one of our our principles around practice which is um, Sometimes we might have, you know, a sense of this is the this is definitely the next thing that you need to do to do what you're doing better. Um, but sometimes we we want to really push people to use practice as an opportunity to explore. 
So it may be that we don't know this. If you try, you know, moving to the left rather than moving to the right, um, that's going to be 100% better than how you just did it. But we know that it could be a lot better. It could be really effective, and practice is the time to to know, to to try that out and to experiment and to see um, to push ourselves to move beyond what is immediately comfortable. Um, and then you know, so that's along with that. Generally, if if we're um, having participants give each other feedback, we're acknowledging that our group is probably mixed. So we might have people who are new to this topic or to this um, skill that we're practicing, and we might have people who are very experienced. And so in order to kind of ensure that the, the feedback will be mostly on point and helpful, um, we give people a feedback cheat sheet. And so it kind of outlines for this activity, here's the, the main things that we would be looking for, the criteria for success for this, for this um, activity, and you know, with a full range of different things that will make it good. And then people can use that. And in fact, we, we want people to use that. We instruct people to have it in their hands um, so that when they're filling in, it was effective when they're pulling something off of that cheat sheet that they just saw in action. And I would just add, and not to, not to be the one to say the intelligent things, Katie, you crushed it. I would just add and clarify slightly. So one of the, the workshop that Katie was describing was um, the workshop, initially at least, was the workshop Practice Perfect, where we are um, training professionals uh, who train others, uh, mostly, mostly, mostly leaders um, who train teachers, but a lot of people have come to the workshop from different professions, whether it be med school or archery, as you mentioned as well. Um, but in our typical Teach Like a Champion workshops, the way that we, uh, what practice might look like is we'll practice a variety of skills. As I mentioned, over the course of a workshop, the, the stakes are very low um, and the skills are very bite-sized, especially in the beginning. Uh, but one of the things that we do to make it safe is always have uh, participants have the opportunity to plan what they will be practicing first. So for example, if we are practicing um, how to cold call in a positive way, we will have them um, either we'll have them script their cold call questions or we'll, we will even give them the questions that they would be using because the focus would then in their practice be on what they would say to cold call in a positive way. For example, uh, Katie, I love what you wrote down. Uh, would you mind starting off the conversation, right? That would be a, a cold call prompt that a teacher could use that would actually invite a student into the conversation rather than say, what did you get for answer number one, Doug, or Doug, what, what is, you know, what is 75 divided by 12.5? Um, so that's an example of a bite-sized technique that we would have teachers script first um, before they would then jump into the practice. Other examples of things they might practice, um, how do you deliver precise praise uh, to a student? How do you praise their actions, not their traits? Um, how do you use praise in a genuine way? So we have, you know, from Teach Like a Champion, many, many techniques that we then look at, A, what does it take to, to use this technique successfully? So what are the success points for what this practice will look like? And then uh, B, what will they, how will they plan it to then implement it in a successful way so that they are really taking away, um, taking away what we want them to from the practice. That sounds, uh, I, I, I love the sound of that. And, uh, you know, the giving them the chance to practice it. I really like the fact that you guys kind of give them the script so that then they've just got to think about how am I going to deliver this without having to think about developing the content as well on the on the fly. Um, sounds um, I've got an idea in my head kicking around about how to do that in a coaching workshop um, situation too. Um, so that's that's very helpful uh, for folks for sure. Um, that's fantastic. For, yeah, for people who have been, for some of the folks who've been through the USCC Coach Developer Academy workshops, I think you'll notice some very similar things about how those um, workshops are run, much like there are factors that are very similar in what you guys are doing in terms of 
um, that practice and feedback and starting off, you know, hopefully low threat, um, you know, supportive environment, then, you know, ratcheting up the threat level, if you will. Mm -hmm. It sounds really ominous. <laughs> I should come up with a better word for that. That's the first thing that came to mind. And, uh, you know, and, and still having that in there uh, and part of it. And um, I think the other thing that we do really well in the Coach Developer Academies is teaching people how to give that feedback. And I, I thought some of the terminology used there was really good. I love the, you know, the uh, rather than saying I like it, it was more effective or it was effective when, I, I really like that change in terminology. I think it, it's pretty powerful. And um, and like is such a you're right it's it is so subjective and while effective may be somewhat subjective as well I think it drives home a point a little bit differently um, with that um, uh, part of it. Um, well, I wanted to, I wanted to transition and talk about how you know how did how did you guys come involved in the in the sports world taking this from you know classroom trying to get seventh graders or third graders to line up properly which I think probably coaches could use that skill too and um, and transitioning that into the into the sports and, and coaching world uh, you know it's funny um, the coaching world kind of found us to some degree which I think is a uh, testament to how serious the world of coaching is about getting better and how committed you know it's a competitive environment and so when people can find a competitive advantage they're looking for it um, for me at least it was uh, you know soccer is my chosen game and uh, I got an early contact from someone at US soccer saying would you ever have an interest in talking to us about you know coaching and teaching and uh, I think the first couple workshops were <laughs> I said yes uh, it was, you know, I think it was it was typical of what we do. It was kind of like our practice workshops, which is we just um, I led the league in mistakes and tried to think a lot about understanding the content through through coaches' eyes. But over time, you know, uh, there are so many parallels and so much to learn by uh, by taking insights from teaching and applying them to coaching and applying and taking insights from coaching and applying them to teaching. Um, so one of the first workshops for me was. Uh, I, went, I did a workshop for U.S. Soccer in their pro license course, which is which was primarily major league soccer coaches. And the first thing that I did was show them videotape of a math teacher who we love. Uh, and I will tell you, I was so nervous. <laughs> Honestly, you know, there were three hours ahead of me, and I was like, if this thing doesn't go over well, I'm in big trouble. <laughs> but um, you know, to, to their credit, like uh, this is a group of like professional soccer coaches who are the top of their profession, and they could have they could have yawned and been like, who is this guy showing us a math video? But as soon as you know, we stopped 30 seconds in the video, they instantly saw applications to what they did in their everyday life, and you know, I think the, the room just kind of crackled to life. Um, and so I, I just, I, you good know, good choice of video then. Good call. I mean, it was, it was honestly, I was bailed out by the uh, by the incredible skill of this teacher whose uh, whose video is showing. So, um, so thank you, thank you, Denarius, if you're listening. <laughs> 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 um, but I, but I think that kind of, for me, that was the moment where I was like, wow, there, you know, there's really something in this, and I think there. Are, the insights have definitely run both directions. So a lot of what we learned about teaching, we've learned from thinking about it through the lens of coaches. A lot of what we learned, uh, well, a lot of what we've been able to share with coaches just comes from studying and talking to teachers about teaching. Uh, and it, you know, for me, at least it's, it's grown from there because it's been fascinating and there's just been a strong interest in, in thinking about the craft of helping people learn better uh, in, in sports settings. Well, and as I, say at the beginning so many coaches you know refer to themselves as, as teachers and you know I, I put I, I put John Wooden on a on a bit of a pedestal and there's always danger in putting people on pedestals but one of the things that it, it dawned on me at some point in time in reading about him and reading what he wrote was that you know he was a trained teacher he was a high school English teacher that was his first job and I and throughout the whole element of that, I kept coming back to, I'm wondering what it was that he learned, you know, in preparing to be a teacher that helped him as a coach. Because I I just see so much in there that seems, you know, just spot on uh, with that. And and then I, I wonder also, you know, at some point in time, you know, what did he learn as a coach, you know, coaching baseball and basketball in high schools 
that he translated in the classroom, perhaps, but we don't obviously know as much about that part of it because he only you know taught high school for a few years and then was off to uh, to you know tackle uh, other things along the way. And I I also know that you know one of the things that is disappointing to me is that uh, you know a lot more and more states have moved away from requiring coaches to have you know teaching licenses or be on the faculty. I think about half the states now have that requirement. I may be off on that, but I don't think I am very much. And that, you know, that if you wanted to be a high school coach in Georgia where I grew up, you had to be a teacher on the faculty. Now, sometimes, you know, that area was a little gray. Our high school football coach at my high school was mm -hmm. the driving instructor. Um, but he had also, he had, he had taught something long before that once he got to be the head coach and that's a whole different thing in, in Georgia being the head football coach at the local high school is a big deal and uh, but I, I all of our coaches were teachers first and the coaching was definitely a, a side gig and I see a lot of times now we have people who are coming to us and if we want to talk youth sport volunteer coaching that's a whole you know different thing in terms of lack of training, and that's something we're trying to change through the USCCE. But that training and getting people to practice and think about it and and to do it well, so that you know kids have a great experience in sport, they'll tend to stick around in the sport. And I think that's something we're all striving to do, whether it's guide archery or you know those of us in other sports as well. Um, on that, and I think that more people we can bring in to help us look at that and our practices and see what can we do better it is highly beneficial and you know again teachers are doing this you know eight hours a day how many ever day you know 200 days a year and that's way more than you know that that's as much as any coach is doing for sure uh, with their athletes so anyway, sorry a little tangent there and just some thoughts that I jotted down here um, um, for you guys and um, and you know anything else you want to add in terms of what you guys see as you know the the overlap with uh, coaching and maybe also uh, you know if some folks are out there interested in you know learning more about it uh, where can they go how can they contact you and, and reach out sounds like you already talked to some folks I don't know if you've talked to them at US lacrosse or just local lacrosse coaches but um, you know what can you know what can be done there to to facilitate that, uh, maybe that partnership. So can I, I w I'd love to jump in, this is Katie, and just um, speak to kind of the first, the first thing that you raised around kind of the, so, you know, what I see is a parallel now that we've, you know, as Doug said, we've had more interest from the coaching community. Um, you know, earlier Erica was talking about how we're really intentional in our workshops about establishing a culture of practice so that um, we can really normalize, people feel comfortable practicing in that setting. Um, but I think there's another piece which is that how that then shapes the culture of our schools and our people in that it makes teaching a more connected profession. You know, we're no longer, you know, in our schools where we're, we're, we have vibrant practice happening on a regular basis, teachers are really connected to each other. Their doors are open. They're very used to teaching in front of each other. They are used to giving and getting feedback very fluidly, so it doesn't even feel like feedback sometimes. And I just see the way that that makes uh, classrooms better and it makes teachers want to stay longer doing this work that's, that is so demanding in so many ways. And, you know, it's really struck me the parallels for coach developers and, co you know, in, in their work that, you know, I think it was maybe in, in um, conversations with you, Sam, or in, a, in one of your previous podcasts talking about how isolated uh, coaches can be and how, how transformative really this focus on coach development can be in that, um, in the absence of coach development, in the absence of coaches have the opportunity to make this a social endeavor to, you know, coach in front of other coaches and get feedback on their coaching and be reflective about their coaching, um, you know, they often coach the way that they were coached, right? And so there's, they don't have this opportunity to get better at what they do. And they just, they have, they just, they are very isolated in what they do, right? If you're a, a 
little league coach in the middle of, you know, upstate New York um, with no towns around, you know, you might never have somebody else who is a coach come and see you coach. Um, and, you know, really what was so inspirational um, with the archery group um, and other coaching groups is just the hunger for coaches to build that, that, um, that culture of development and, and um, kind of peer accountability. Um, and, you know, so that they are, they know that they're doing the best job that they can do. Well, I, yeah, maybe I, I, I can tell you. Maybe I can just time in with one quick story, and then uh, I assume you'll cut this out. But then I have to I have to hop off because I've got a twelve o'clock call. Um, but uh, just to jump in with a story, one time I was actually visiting Katie's school was one of the most telling moments for me about the culture that you build among adults that she was talking about. I ran into a teacher that I knew in her school walking down the hallway, and I said, "Hey, how you doing?" And she said, "I can't talk right now. I just taught the worst lesson." I'm, I'm sure it wasn't that bad, but I have to go talk to Katie about it which I think is, is really fascinating, which, you know, her perception of her relationship to the organization and to her boss was that I want to share with them the things that are hard about my job because they're going to make me better. Most teachers, I don't think, um, want their bosses to know uh, about their struggles. And I just think it says a lot about the kind of cultures that we need. You know, we talk about this a lot in the classroom. We call it a culture of error, which is if, as John Wooden said, the goal of the teacher is to understand the difference between I taught it and they learned it. If our students are trying to hide their mistakes from us, it's 10 times harder. But if we can yeah. make students feel comfortable, athletes feel comfortable sharing their mistakes with us, then our job just got easier. And I don't think it's any different with the adults, which is if they are, you know, if you say, can I come see you teach? Can I come see you run a session next week? And they say, oh, don't come. I'm trying something new. It's going to be really hard. Basically, what they're saying is don't see me struggle with the reality of my job. Come see me on a day when I'm doing something I know I can already do. <laughs> and that, you know, and so I, I just think like that moment from Katie's school talks, talks about the culture that she so intentionally built, which is about adults being comfortable sharing the struggle of the job in faith that the people who the people will observe them that that's normal and that their goal is to get them better. And I just, you know, I think it was, I'm sure it was a lot of work on Katie's part to build that kind of culture. Well, well Doug, I hate to see you go, but I understand your call. But if I can get Katie and Erica to stick around for another minute, I want to wrap up a couple of things and uh, they can also plug websites and do stuff like that. But Doug, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks. My pleasure. Yep. Take care. I actually have a, I actually have 12, oh, sorry, 12 o'clock as well. I'm so sorry. I'm here for you, Sam. The All right. Well, that's cool. Well, Erica, I totally understand. I, I ran a little bit long here, but you guys were just having making so many great points that uh, I didn't want to cut it off. So, uh, well, then we'll just leave it with Katie and myself, and uh, Katie can carry the water for everybody else. All right. Well, thank you. Thank I'll tell you Erica. the real deal about these two. Ah, there, <laughs> there we you go. go. All right. There we go. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks Erica, again. very much. Appreciate it. Yep. Yep. Uh, the, the, the fun of kind of doing this live, because I'm not editing any of this out, because it just makes it that much more fun. Excellent. Um, yeah. Okay, I think it was really uh, – I, I think one of the things is that I had mentioned that they're isolated. and, and But I also find it funny, if you, if you look at coaches at the highest level, at the college and pro level – I, and I follow college football mm -hmm. obscenely closely. Probably mm -hmm. it's probably a problem for me <laughs> that I you know one day may seek help for right now. Really enjoy it. Is I I I, I follow this during the off season and stuff. And there's there's a story every now and then about a coaching staff from you know the University of Georgia who goes out to you know the University of Oklahoma to watch them you know run a practice or see how they do things. And these coaches who are who are going to compete with each other on the field probably one day, yet seem very open about, yeah, come on in, you know, we'll show you how we do that, and and that there's a willingness for those coaches who can say, hey, we don't know everything, and there's probably a better mm -hmm. way in that concept, kind of the Japanese term that was, I'm not sure how hot it is, you know, kazen, the, you know, constant mm -hmm. seeking of improvement, and doing that, and I, I, I encourage you know, coaches, that if you are that little league coach in upstate New York and you're the only little league coach within, you know, 50 miles, well, why not invite a basketball coach to come and watch you coach? Yeah. You know, right. they, they may not know how to teach somebody to field a ground ball, but 
there may be other elements that they pick up that are about the how of coaching or some other things that they're really beneficial and it doesn't have to be someone who is for unless you're really looking at hey yeah. specifically I need this thing but you know what you can go out and find out you know uh, okay how do I run you know a, a you know a two three zone defense in basketball you can probably find 50 million YouTube videos on that right but then it's like the yeah but how do I really teach it mm-hmm. to you know you know whatever age group I'm teaching the the that defense too. So I think we could do a lot better at, at collaborating one one another. And I think some sports out there are really doing neat jobs at maybe at the administrative level. I know here in town, USA Hockey and USA Swimming are are regularly getting together to talk about issues that they have because their sports are actually fairly similar from an administrative standpoint. And then some of the coaching things as well. I and mean, they both are facility based. Um, you know, they both are a club-based sport, and so talking about club administration, and I, I would love to see that trickle down to the coaches where they're getting together and can talk to one another about things and help each other out and give them feedback on that as, as teachers in a school have the opportunity because you're all, you know, in the same buildings together, or at least pretty close together yeah. uh, with that. So, sorry, another yeah tangent there on that yeah no I think I think that's that's dead on I, I think you know I think it was it was um, your guest from from US hockey who was talking about that like you can google skills <laughs> he's like all the hockey skills you need you can find that on the internet <laughs> you know but yeah. it but it is it's um, it's it's exactly what you're talking about the, the how to um, best instruct so that um, so that kids really can develop and can develop in a way that they they see themselves getting better and they build a love for whatever sport they're they're in. Um, that's that's the magic. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, I think you know, as you said that there's you know videos out there and, and you know and organizations. I mean, hockey, soccer have and lacrosse have their own skill videos that are very good. I'd recommend people go to the you know mm-hmm. go to those folks first before you know some guy with a shaky iPhone shot um, <laughs> skills, and which could be very good, but um, but with that, but I think also it's like, okay, now I did a skill, but now when I go out to teach those kids that, am I doing the things like checking for understanding and doing those mm-hmm. things that are rarely, and I, I can't say I've seen a, a video off the top of my head where they discuss that part of it of, okay, here's how you do it, and then and then the video ends, or and maybe you see the kids practicing and it looks really well, but you, you know, wonder well you know did they splice together you know after three weeks of practice making that look together but that checking for understanding and and how you give the explanation for what you want to do which which sometimes can be very long and that was one of the other things I learned about myself in reflection looking back as a youth sport coach was I talked way too much Mm, oh yeah I I over explained I went over their heads um, mm-hmm. I won't tell this, my favorite story on my brother about uh, teaching kids how to catch a fly ball because I won't embarrass him uh, <laughs> like that. But but he but he had the realization like oh I really yeah I was way over their heads and uh, and so uh, I think there's a lot of those skills um, things like the Coach Developer Academy works on it sounds like your trainings would very much get into that uh, aspect of it no matter what the sport would be. That mm-hmm. is sort of a basic tenet on how how you're going to teach this and how do you give those instructions? How do you do a demonstration? Mm-hmm. Um, those things are are things that the USCC covers in its Coach Developer Academy, as well. All right. Yeah. Well, I do want to wrap this up because you know I don't want to keep you all day. I'm snowed <laughs> in, so I have no place to go. Um, so you know, I could do this all day. So you really could do it. Yeah. Yeah. I really <laughs> could. Yes. Uh, my whole plans for the day are shot. So. Um, uh, with that, uh, well, hopefully but, the listeners have had a snow day experience too, so they, they're they're still you know they're happy to listen as long as. <laughs> well, yeah, either on their on their commute, plane ride, or uh, while exercising. So yes, <laughs> folks who do listen regularly have told me. I said, well, how do you listen to that? How do you consume this? And one of my buddies says he he stockpiles not just this podcast, but other ones, and he flies to Europe a lot. He says, you know, that's my. That's my plane listening. You know, uh-huh. Turn it on. Yeah. I said, I said, oh, and when you're ready to go to sleep, you put mine on. <laughs> it does it. So uh, with that, but no. 
Um, <laughs> me, yes. My guests, certainly not. Um, all right, let's wrap this silliness up. Uh, any any <laughs> parting good. words, and also, uh, where can people find more information about uh, you know your organization and some of the stuff you're doing, and uh, and find you know workshops and conferences and that sort of thing. So it's time yeah. for you to plug the organization. Awesome. So um, the website that they can go to is um, teachlikeachampion.com, all one word. And um, there they can get um, email kind of contact to reach out to our team um, for workshop information. Um, also, Doug has a really fantastic blog where he writes about teaching, he writes about coaching, and gives lots of um, kind of nuggets of uh, insight that he gains as he's continuing to do the work. Um, and so I highly recommend that. Um, we also are on Twitter. <laughs> I'm very impressed with us. Um, <laughs> I'm at KT Yezzy, letter K, letter T, Y-E-Z-Z-I. Doug's at Doug underscore Lamov, and Erica's at Erica Woolway, and we are also at Teach Like a Champion. Excellent, and I'll I'll put all those in the show notes with links as well. Uh, Fantastic. Yeah, for that. So cool. All right. Well, I appreciate you hanging on and, and wrapping up for the team and uh, please pass along. I really do appreciate Eric and Doug taking uh, time out to, to chat and uh, oh and, and one more on plug this. go for it one more plug is to pick up practice perfect um, which you can get on Amazon or perhaps through your local bookseller <laughs> yes yeah I was not going I, I was not going to let you get away with not plugging the, the book it is, a, it is a really good read and and it is one of those things that if you if you read it from a coach's perspective, you know you can see where oh yeah that example works, but also the the the, the how behind it is is very applicable whether you're trying to get third graders lined up to go out to recess or whatever else you can see you know oh okay here's how I can do some of that and I love some of the little uh, tips in there as well so yes I highly recommend uh, as well with that all right. Well, uh, thanks again, and I want to thank everybody for listening and bearing with us some silliness and a little bit of uh, sort of a, a, a chaos there towards the end. Uh, but that happens when you have busy, uh, smart people who are in high demand. Uh, we have that happen. So, And the nature of podcasting just kind of makes it fun anyway. So, uh, Katie, on behalf of the whole crew, thanks a lot. Thank you, Sam. This was really fun. It was great, great to have the opportunity to uh, to talk talk coaching and learning with you. Yeah, same here. Have a great day. Thanks, you too.